Christ is risen. He is risen Pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for Good Friday. And we remember who can call Good Friday good, a term too oft misunderstood. We who were bought by his blood, we can call Good Friday good. And we remember Saturday, Lord, in the silence of that day. But this morning, Lord, we are grateful that the sun rose on the third day. And we are grateful, Lord, for the promise of eternal life that we celebrate together in song, in scripture, in prayer, and in life. Father, draw us near to you, I pray. Speak to us, we ask, in the strong name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I'd be remiss if I failed to say God is good all the time. time. I have this friend who lives uh, in Axtell, Texas, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I love you, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Now, you have to know the context. We were in a a revival, a community revival. There were eight churches in a 1A school district. Most of them had started off of splits from one of those churches, and the local pastors and I decided to get together. There were Catholic and Protestant, African-American, Anglo, Hispanic, and we decided just to have a revival. And then the question was, where do we have it? And we said, well, let's have it at the largest church, but our, our members said, no, we're not going back to that church. And so we had to rent a tent, and we rented a tent, and we had this uh, service of worship, and on the afternoon that I was preparing for, for my night to preach, I received word that my brother and his wife had had a, a, a son, and this son was in very grave condition, and I wanted to be with them, but I had committed to preach at the revival, and so that night God visited us with power, and in that service, a godly deacon from one of the other churches came to me and, I, and said, I love you and there's not a thing you can do about it. It was some months later, I was gassing up my car in Belmead, Texas on the way into Waco and, and I heard this resonant voice, mellifluous voice from behind me say, I love you and there's not a thing you can do about it and it was my friend and I have never forgotten him saying that and I wonder who loves you like that? Who loves you with an undying love? And the truth is we fear, don't we, that somehow there's something we can do that would cause the people who love us to stop loving us. You who are baseball fans, this is your time of year. For years and years I've gone to baseball games. I have never once caught a fly ball, not not once. I've carried my glove with me. I have been prepared It has never happened for me. There was a a gentleman uh, named Steve Montforto up in uh, Philadelphia, a lifetime Phillies fan, who who also had never caught a fly ball. And then there was that that magnificent day. It was his lucky day. He was sitting there with his three-year-old daughter, Emily, and the fly ball curved around the net right up there and and came right into his hands. I want you to see a, a clip of that this morning just to get a perspective on what I'm saying about undying love. He caught the ball, 
He hands it to his daughter. She gives it back. And all he can do is hold her close. Oh, God has given us gifts as well, and sometimes, sometimes we throw God's best gifts away. And how does God feel about us when we sin? I'd love to show you in God's Word. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Hear the Word of the Lord. We've been in a series in Romans chapter 8, thinking together about coming to life. And today is the crescendo of Paul's great eighth chapter to the Romans. Stand with me as we read God's word and reverence for our God. He's been asking a series of questions. We saw five of those last week. Today, the sixth and seventh questions and then, thank God, an answer to those questions. He says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. We started six weeks ago with no condemnation. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He had just talked about the victory that Christ had given us. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that started the conversation about no condemnation. And he has taken us on a journey to understand all that we have in the Holy Spirit. And he said in verse 11, if the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, then you will live. He says there are moments in our lives when we suffer, but as joint heirs of Jesus Christ, as we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. And when we don't know how to pray as we ought to, the Holy Spirit prays for us. We groan, the world groans, and God groans with us in prayer, that we might become the people that he wants us to be. And he said, the whole world is waiting for that to happen. So God is working, he said, all things together for good. If you love God, is that you? If you're called according to his purpose, God is working all things together for good. We saw last week, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who's going to condemn us? Who's going to charge us? Because it's God who justifies, it's Christ who died, who is risen, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is also interceding for us. Sixth question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything? Is there anyone? Is there any, anything that's happened in our lives, any sin we've committed that would cause God 
to just say, that's it. I no longer love that person. Paul's answer to that is important for people like us who have sinned. His answer to that is that God's love for us is not contingent on our ability to keep his law. God's love for us is permanently rooted in the events of the cross and the resurrection. In fact, we cannot comprehend Christ without comprehending the cross. And the love of God is all about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have somehow come to believe falsely that either God loves us or things are gonna go wrong in our lives. But the two cannot both be held in tension. So if God loves us, then nothing will go wrong in our lives. But we all know that things have gone wrong in our lives. Or if, if we have things going wrong in our lives, then we say, well then, God must not love me. But the Apostle Paul says, you are bound for trouble in this life. But you can trust in this truth that we triumph with Christ over sin and death. And Christ's resurrection is also our resurrection. And if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, fellow believers, then you will live. Look at his undying love. He says we we travail in trouble in this world. He, he talks about it there in that first list in verse 35 when he says trouble, that slips us. It, it's just pressure. One of the golfers yesterday at the Masters, uh, Duffner, said, stress stresses me. Well, that's what Paul was saying. I've got trouble and trouble will press against you, hardship. It's the original word in the Greek that shows us what it means to be between a rock and a hard place or persecution. And Paul's not writing hypothetically here because seven years from when he writes these words, the emperor Nero will use Christians as the lamps as his, at his parties. He will, he will uh, dip them in pitch and tar and set them on fire. And he will blame the burning of Rome on them. And the small children in the crowd who first heard this letter read in Rome, they will live to see Domitian come and become in, 19, in, in, in 81 AD to 96 AD. He will become the emperor of Rome and he will initiate a new persecution. Not famine, he says, not nakedness. Because if you're too poor to own clothes, that's what he's talking about when he says nakedness. Or danger or sword, can these things separate us from the love of God? And then he quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. You need to know the context of that psalm is the psalmist is railing against God. He's accusing God. He's saying things to God that you and I would not say lest a lightning bolt struck us. He's saying, God, we've heard about what you did for our ancestors, and we're just wondering, where are you? We're suffering, we're dying, Israel is struggling and you are in absentia. You are nowhere to be found. And he is railing against God. And in that context, in verse 22, he says, for your sake, for your sake, we are suffering all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul will pick up that idea at the beginning of verse 37 when he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, for I am persuaded that neither death... Because death is the ultimate enemy, isn't it? 
And uh, none of us escapes it. Leo Buscali says um, that uh, nobody leaves this world alive, not, not one person, um, even the great uh, Steve Jobs, uh, who passed away this year, said, the one thing that gives me clarity in these days is the reality of death. He said, there's no sense pretending that we will escape it because it is real. That's the world that we live in. And I want you just to see there in verse 36 that we, we Christians, we who are loved by God, travail in trouble in this life. Trouble is as certain as sparks flying upward, Job said. And some of you have lived a Job kind of life. But just notice at the beginning of verse 36, he says this trouble is for Christ's sake. For Paul, when a Christian suffered, we were just, Colossians 1, fulfilling in our part finishing up what Christ began on the cross. So from Paul's point of view, the fact that Christ suffered on the cross did not mean that you and I would never suffer. It just meant that our suffering would never be in vain. It would never be meaningless or purposeless, that our suffering is with purpose because we suffer for Christ's sake. And I wonder, you who are in great suffering right now, would you do what you are doing for Christ? You who are planning in the near future or someday to propose to some young woman and you wonder what are you going to say to her father to ask for her hand in marriage, I have a little help for you today. Uh, A young man who anticipated the possibility of suffering wrote this letter to his future father-in-law. This is from uh, the missionary Adoniram Judson. This is what he wrote when he asked for Anne Hasseltine's hand in marriage. I I remembered the nervousness of that moment for me. I forgot to take my wallet with me when I went into the restaurant to ask Melanie's dad. He has never forgotten that, and he reminds me every time he calls. I paid for you to get to marry my daughter. This is what Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne Hasseltine's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. That's ominous, isn't it? Whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. He says, I wonder, can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of heaven and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? If you were the father-in-law, what would you say to that? Young men, that's how it's done. That's how you write a letter like that. There's a model for you. Was he just being melodramatic as preachers sometimes can be? Was he just uh, trying to say, like I said to Melanie's dad, I will never be able to support your daughter the way that you have supported her. We're going to live in some tiny parsonage on some plain in West Texas where there are no trees. I mean, I tried to paint a picture for him, but 
was Adoniram Judson just waxing eloquent? Well, the story is that on their way, on their way to India, um, they left as Congregationalists. They became Baptists on the way. They read the Bible, and when they got there, the first thing that happened was they were baptized in the ocean. And, and, then, and then, as they were preparing to go to Burma, they lost their first child, um, stillborn. Their second child lived to be about eight months old, Roger, and then he died. Then after that, the Anglo-Burmese War They weren't uh, British, but they were thrown in jail because they looked like they were British. And and in that that pain, uh, while Adoniram was in prison, uh, she gave birth to their third child and Anne did not survive the birth. And that child who was born died eight months later. Adoniram Judson was a prophet. But you need to know that she didn't die in vain. Because before Anne Hasseltine Judson died, she was able to translate. She was the first to translate parts of the New Testament into the Burmese language for the people there. She won. While her husband was in prison, she won some of the Burmese people to Christ. The very first converts, she led them to Christ. And then she translated the Gospel of Matthew into the Thai language, the first to ever translate the Bible into the language of Thailand. She was the one who did that. And just this afternoon, if you were to go up to our Tallowood Center, you would find a congregation, a thriving congregation, the fastest growing part of our congregation, maybe the fastest growing church in the city of Houston is the Burmese Christian Fellowship, our, our Burmese Baptist Church that meets up there that started with 37 years ago. Next Sunday afternoon, I will preach in their seventh anniversary service to 350 members. And if you ask them, Pastor Tong and his wife, Mong, if you ask them, how did it all start for the Burmese? How did you become Christians before you came to the United States? They say in a beautiful accent, there was this man named Adoniram Judson and had a wife named Anne. And they came to our country and they told our people about Jesus Christ and they promoted education and they promoted good health. And, and by the time... By the time that Anne died and then Adoniram died, Christianity, there are churches, some 350 congregations in Burma today called Myanmar who trace their origin to Adoniram Judson and our congregation comes through that line of people. She did not die in vain. I'm telling you, you may suffer in this life, but if you choose to suffer for Christ, your suffering will not be in vain. I can't tell you when it's going to end. He says all day long in verse 36. He says we will suffer and we will suffer all day long and we are helpless to do anything about it. That's the world we live in. One of our ladies I ran into in uh, Jason's Deli last Saturday night. I always, I always cook on Saturday evenings at Jason's and bring it home to my family because I love the free ice cream. I eat the ice cream while they're making the meal. Some of you've seen me there, it's true. If they're slow, I eat too. And while I was eating my ice cream, I ran into one of our members and I said, so how has your week been? And she said, she paused and she said, not very good. And I said, well, why not? 
And she said, well, I was down at the jail where I minister to the young women who come into the jail, and there was one there, 15 years old. Her mother had had her arrested to get her out of human trafficking situation. She had run away from the CPS home that she was in, and somebody had picked her up and was taking her to truck stops and selling her, and she called her mother when she got enough money, and her mother had her arrested to get her out of that. And this woman with tears in her eyes said, she could not look me in the eyes. And when we hear about 27 million, she said, I know there are 27 million people in our world who are being human trafficked, and Houston is one of the hubs for that. But I had never met one of them. And she said, there must be 27 million young women in our world who cannot lift their eyes This is the suffering in our world. This is what it means to be like a a lamb led to the slaughter. And if we think we're the only ones who who know about that, who maybe have experienced the kind of, of helplessness that we feel when the doctor says cancer or when the doctor says there's nothing we can do for your loved one, when the doctor says um, your child is not going to live, if we think we're the only ones to, that are lambs led to the slaughter, just remember what Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, verse 6, when he said about Jesus, like a lamb who before those who slaughtered him was silent, he did not open his mouth. We do not suffer in vain because our Lord did not suffer in vain. And the good news is even though we may travail through trouble for all the time of our lives here, we can trust in this truth that we will triumph in Christ's life as he becomes our way, as he becomes our truth as he becomes our life. So Paul says, do these things separate us from the love of God? No, he says in verse 37, in all these things. Notice how comprehensive our victory is. All these things, the whole list in verse 35, he says, we got that. We triumphed over that. We are more than conquerors. He could have just said we're conquerors. The word Nike, which is the, is the name of the popular sportswear, is the word for victory in Greece. It's the stone that was given to the original victors who won in the Olympic Games. They got this stone. It was their Nike. And that's the word he uses. We are conquerors, but it's more than that. He says we are more than conquerors. I can help you. We have this word in English. The prefix he uses is hyper. We are hyper conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This conquest that we have is comprehensive. No, in all these things, and when he makes the list, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor any powers, when he says not the present nor the future, not height nor depth, and then he he comprehends it all, doesn't he? He says, and not anything else in all creation. Our conquest is comprehensive It is certain. He says to us, I am convinced. The word he uses means I've been persuaded and you can't change my mind. It's a tense that we don't have in English, but it means I have been convinced and that is permanent. It will never change. And Paul is not only persuaded, but he wants 
to persuade others, don't we? We who become convinced of the victory of Christ over death, don't we want to persuade others? I read this week about an atheist in San Antonio who, who led against, he led the marches of the atheists there. He led against prayer in schools. Every time God was mentioned, he was against it. And there were those who were so angry at him. But this week, I read, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And they said, what happened? And he said, he said, well, I was diagnosed with an illness and I didn't have the money to pay my medical bill. And there was a church, a little Baptist church up in Athens, Texas. That's a long way, by the way, from San Antonio. That's just southeast of Dallas, you know. And they heard about my illness and they wrote a check and sent it in the mail because they knew that I was sick and I couldn't pay my medical bill. And he said, that's when I started rethinking my position. It wasn't when the Christians marched or, or said atheism is wrong or got angry at me. It was when Christians actually put what they believed into practice. Look, it doesn't do us any good to talk about God's undying love if you and I do not love as well. Paul is convinced because the resurrection not only changed his life, but the resurrection was changing the lives of those to whom he preached. It was changing the world. And in that day and this day, there are those who don't believe in the resurrection. But Paul said, I am persuaded that none of these can separate us from the love, from the undying love of Christ. Just this week, I read about a, a man in Italy, a, a minister went there and, and went to a cemetery and saw an unusual sight and asked the people about it. And it turns out that years ago, there was an atheist in Italy who died and and he, he didn't believe in the resurrection. And just to make sure that he was never raised from the dead, he had an enormous stone placed on top of his grave and engraved on top. I'll just translate the Italian for you. It was no resurrection here. He didn't believe in it. What he didn't know was that when they placed him in his grave, before they could get the rock on top, that an acorn would fall on his grave. And that acorn would be watered by the rains and the sprinklers and in time that acorn would come to life and if you can believe it if you went to that cemetery in Italy today you would see that a, an enormous oak tree has split that rock into right between no and resurrection here right up through the middle of it has grown this enormous oak tree as a sign that life overcomes Death. Now stay with me here when I say if a little acorn which wants to live, which says I, I think I can, I think I can and splits the rock, how much more when Paul says in verse 11, if he who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, how will you live? So what is that stone in your life? Is it, is it bitterness? Is it, is it indifference? Is it anger? Is it frustration? with the pain you've experienced in life, whatever it is that keeps you from believing in the resurrection, trust this, that the Spirit of God who lives in you when you believe in Christ will surely bring you to life as well. And so he says this resurrection, this, this truth that conquers all, it's, it's convincing and it convinces us and it convinces the world. And finally, he says, not just no condemnation, but no 
separation, the pain that we experience in this life can never separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ben Witherington, the biblical commentator, has written a number of of commentaries. I think he's the most prolific uh, writer of commentary. If he's not David Garland at True It Is, I'm not sure who is, but, but Witherington's written a lot of books. And just this year on January the 11th, he received devastating news. His 32-year-old daughter, pulmonary embolism, no signs, and they find her in her home, and she has passed away. And people say the strangest things when we lose our loved ones. Somebody said to him, well, it's the will of God. It's the will of God. God caused her death. Witherington said, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe we live in a fallen world where we're susceptible to sickness and illness and tragedy and pain and violence. But he said, here's what I believe. As I looked at my daughter who didn't even look like herself in that casket, as I looked at my baby, he said, I thought to myself, the God of the resurrection has a better plan for her. And his yes is louder than death's no. His yes is louder than death's no. Don't you understand? You, you can try to kill love. You can nail it to a cross. You can place it in a tomb. You know, they put Jesus in the grave and they set a Roman guard there to keep him in because they were afraid. They had heard of his reputation from Lazarus and they put him in the tomb and they sealed the stone and they put a Roman guard so that no resurrection would happen there. But somebody forgot to tell Jesus. And early on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the grave. Low in the grave he lay. Jesus, my Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. You can bury love, but you can't kill love. And Jesus rose from the grave And his undying love is what raises us out of the trouble of this life into triumph. There is somebody who loves you and there's not a thing you can do to change that. You can throw the ball back and he will put his arms around you. Not because he loves your sin, but because he loves you and he will never ever stop loving you. He loves you and there's one thing you can do about it. You can believe it. You can receive it. And we were praying that that would happen right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your amazing love and grace. Would you help us today, I pray, to receive your undying love. God, help us to believe that what you say is true. And God, I pray today that you would help us to become followers of the one who loves us with an undying love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.